welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 94, recorded on February 24th, 2019. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you. We kick things off this week with some great news out of the KDE camp. Yeah, they've decided to embrace Matrix and add it to their instant messaging infrastructure. They're going for something modern, but freedom respecting. I'm really pleased to see this story. So just backing up here for a second to make it clear, we're talking about the project and how they communicate. I mean, I'm sure we'll see this influence trickle down into some of the KDE applications, but this is big because communication is something the project has struggled with. Inside the KDE group, there's different camps of messaging. You have Telegram, Discord, IRC, different IRC servers and rooms, and a mixture of all of these, which has led to some complaints in the project about making it hard to communicate, staying up to date on what everybody's working on, keeping everybody pulling in the same direction. This sort of solves that because it introduces bridges to some of these different endpoints, but it also brings a lot of advanced communication and routing features. Matrix is really nice. And when you combine it with something like Riot IM, which they will be, you have a lot of the features of Slack and more. And that's why it's so great to see this because Slack for some projects is quicker to get started with. It's got a network effect. It's free for certain types of usage. And it's really tempting because there is, for a lot of cases, a workflow improvement. And so projects are tempted to just hit that button, start up a Slack, boom, now we're collaborating. Deploying something like your own matrix server and loading Riot IM on top of that, depending on which way you go, can be a much larger investment. But it's open source. So it's an open source project using another open source project to communicate, which makes both projects better. And it means this stuff isn't locked up in some proprietary database and some company that's, you know, keeping all this stuff for profit reasons, which they have every right to, but might not mesh with the same goals of a, of a project like KDE. Well, that's exactly it. This is decentralized. It's open source. It really fits perfectly with the KDE ethos. And as for the network effect, I don't think it's a huge issue because the kind of people who use KDE and the Plasma desktop are the kind of people who care about software freedom. And so I think they're more likely to use Matrix than maybe users of some other open source software that's maybe a bit more pragmatic. And am I off base there? Or do you think that KDE users tend to be more freedom loving? I don't even know if it really matters because they certainly will be more inclined to use Matrix now because that's what the project is using. And if they, as users, want to get involved with the project, they'll be using Matrix. I mean, it creates its own network effect when a large open source project starts to use this. And this is just more good news for Matrix. That might be the bigger story here is Matrix has had a really good year. They've confirmed that they're the basis for France's secure instant messaging application, which is huge. Again, they're using like a fork of Riot IM to do this. And uh, there was a FOSDEM talk that went into details about it, Joe. I know you probably saw that talk. And it looks like it's full-fledged, like, government-level implementation that will have an, uh, jobs created to for contractors and for people doing implementation in IT. Like, it looks like it's going to have a massive effect from Matrix. Yeah, and the more people use it, the better it's going to get. And to be fair, KDE is not abandoning the old methods of communication. As you said, there are bridges there, and they will continue to use things like IRC. But... Hopefully, it's going to push forward Matrix and make some people check it out who have never actually done so before. And maybe we can finally have, in the open source world, a standard way to communicate that is modern and does support the features that we need that IRC doesn't necessarily. 
but that isn't something like Telegram or Slack that is ultimately proprietary. I remember talking to the project at a conference when they were brand new, and the the big thing they were emphasizing at, I think maybe it was OSCON, or it, I don't remember, but it was this connection system that they have, this, these bridges they could do to, and it's not just to like IRC and Telegram, it's it's to PBX systems and video conferencing systems. Like it's it's incredible. And it handles all of this plumbing for open source projects or for businesses that want to use it. So when you see government level adoption and when you see large project scale adoption, you begin to set a new standard. You begin to set something that is is bigger than it was before because as they write on the Matrix blog, we expect this will drive a lot of effort into maturing the end-to-end encryption and the Matrix React, iOS, and Android SDKs and applications. They believe with France's federated network of Matrix server, you're going to see like an, like an ecosystem of businesses around that. That could be, that could be like you're starting to see like bots that get built for Slack that get sold for a certain amount. Or when businesses want to have a, a, a new hip friendly interface for modern businesses, they create a Slack interface to their project. You'll start to see people think a lot more about Matrix for those kinds of things. And I think that's a pretty necessary component. It's, there's already some momentum there, so I think this is just going to make it even better. It's, it's the year of Matrix, Joe. Well, let's hope so. But is it also the year for Onion Share? <laughs> um, maybe. It wasn't that bad. We tried it out. It's kind of cool. Onion Share is an open source tool for securely and anonymously sending and receiving files using Tor Onion services. Surprise, surprise. It's kind of neat because most of the work is done on the sending side. So whoever wants to send a file, you install Onion Share. And when you run it, it starts a local web server directly on your computer, which it then makes itself accessible on the Tor network. And it would generate a Tor web URL that you can share to somebody. And as long as they have the Tor browser, they pop that URL into their browser, hit enter, and they're on my little mini web server. Yeah, and we've tried this out. And it wasn't the fastest in the world, as you'd expect, over the Tor network. But it worked perfectly well. So no complaints there. And of course, we're talking about Onion Share 2, which is a major new release with tons of new features. So it's nice. It's cross-platform. It's open source. It's a great way to securely send files. Uh, They write in here about how this could be great for journalists to transfer files around and whatnot. But the part that was, I think, the the nice like user experience aspect of this was when Joe downloaded the video I sent, he didn't have to install anything if he already had a Tor browser, which I, I assume you probably already did, Joe. No, I actually just grabbed it. Um, I don't generally use Tor very much because it's so slow and I don't really have anything to hide, but uh, it's easy enough. You don't have to actually install anything. You just download the tar file, extract it, and run the binary, and boom, just works. Yeah, and I think there's some snaps of it too. It's And there's a browser extension. Like There's several ways you can get it pretty quickly if you don't have it. And then you just need that URL. Uh, the fact that it runs a local web server is... Yeah, it's a little iffy from a security standpoint, but you just got to keep it up to date and watch the project. And it does add that sort of ease of use aspect to it where there's no real software needed on the other end, which is pretty nice. And that web server doesn't last very long. As soon as the files are downloaded, it kills that for you. So it's not like it's running all the time. Although you can make it run all the time if you want to. So you could use this to distribute files to multiple people at once if you wanted to. Yeah, and you can watch the transfers as they go out so you can see what speed they're going at and how what percentage they're at, and you can track them all. And you're right, by default, once our uh, once our transfer was done, I think like three minutes after that or whatever it was, 90-second timeout or something, it, it killed the web server. And 
the URL was no longer usable. It doesn't have any built-in way to share that URL, so you're going to need, you know, Signal or Wire or Keybase or, I, I don't know, text message, whatever you want to use to send that URL around. Matrix, even. Yeah. <laughs> You could use Ride I Am on top of Matrix to send it to your buddies. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, you can download several files or just one. It'll do some compression for you if you put some uncompressed stuff in there to make it one file on the other end. It does that automatically. And version 2 is a lot more secure because it generates much longer addresses and it's much harder to guess what those are. And if people do try and brute force it, then after 20 goes, it just shuts it down. So it's pretty much unbrute forcible so it's maybe secure is the wrong word it's all about privacy isn't it it's about being anonymous and essentially hiding the fact that you're sending stuff to people well if you think about it in a journalism context or perhaps in you know another country in an activism context or even even here in the states you could see why privacy could really matter and that's why i think one of the major new features of version two that's pretty slick and really matters, like in that journalism context, is it can do uh, essentially private Dropbox mode, uh, a secure drop, not like Dropbox, the file sync, but like in the journalism context, like a private secure drop. When you use OnionShare to receive files, you turn it into a, uh, into like a, 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 a Tor hidden Dropbox. Think of it like a lightweight version of secure drop that anyone can just run on their own laptop or on a server instance somewhere or on your own desktop without really having to set anything up. You just run this You run this app, um, you get a URL that people can send files to, and you start receiving mode, and it'll just sit there waiting to receive a file. Now, obviously, there's some security implications with that, but in certain contexts, that's massively valuable. Imagine, imagine if Glenn Greenwald had this when Edward Snowden was trying to work with him to exchange files. It, it, this would have been a game changer for them. Yeah, and if you're running it on the desktop, then you need to have that desktop running all the time, but you can run it headless on a server if you want to, which again could be very handy for people like Glenn Greenwald. Well, enough with the dark web. Let's go back over to, I don't know, maybe the commercial web. At least there's a lot of money to be made in the land of databases, or I suppose potential money. Well, there's a lot of VC funding, we know that much. Redis Labs have raised $60 million in VC funding. Yeah, they raised $146 million now in total, Joe. That's that's a lot of money. So if you're listening and not familiar with Redis, you might be wondering why is it worth $146 million potentially? Well, it's an open source project for essentially an in-memory key store, which is a way to say a database that's in RAM and really fast and optimized for certain types of database structures. And those types have worked really great in cloud applications, mobile applications, when you're trying to pull in a lot of data for a lot of users very fast. And on top of that now, they're nearly 10 years old. On top of that, they've built Redis Labs, and they have the Redis Enterprise offerings, which is their commercial product, which has certain features that make it nice for managing Redis at at a certain large scale. But although the core of Redis is open source, some of the modules that they have for it aren't. And we talked about this towards the end of last year. They changed the license to Apache, but added something called the Commons Clause, which essentially meant that it was still open source in effect, but you couldn't use it to make money. And then the community said, well, hang on, that means it's not open source anymore. Which was a clear move to try to prevent Amazon from, as they saw it, taking their code, running away with it, and making a super super profitable product off of their backs and not give anything back to them. And this was their move to prevent that in the future. 
But this week, they've decided to clarify that license and they've changed it to what they're calling the Redis Source Available license, which, to be fair, is a much more descriptive and much less confusing name. That's probably the biggest change here, is this name. Instead of calling it Apache 2 Modified Common Clause, which was confusing to everybody, it's just the Redis Source Available license now. That's, that's kind of standard terminology for this type of stuff. It's something we've seen before in this business model. Uh, and I think it, it's a good clarification to be made. The question you have to ask yourself, though, is to what end? They're taking this in, in this strange direction as a company. There's quotes in here, which we'll have linked in the show notes that you can go read. Or if you just follow them on Twitter, they, they clearly see themselves as a victim of large commercial providers like Amazon who are stealing from them. They write on their website, some cloud providers have repeatedly taken advantage of successful open source projects without significant contributions to their communities. They go on to write, they repackage software that was not developed by them into competitive, proprietary service offerings and use their business leverage to recap substantial revenues from these open source projects. Their new license was designed to help prevent this, but they treat it as if this is some new battle that, that they're fighting. In fact, they declare the open source model no longer functional, and it must be rethought, they say. Open source is fundamentally flawed in the age of cloud computing. And that's scary stuff. MongoDB's kind of said something similar. It's, that's provocative. But it's also lessons we've learned in the 90s. Apache had this same problem when the LAMP stack became popular. This isn't a new issue. We've had this problem before, and it's something that you probably should have been aware of when you chose an open source license to begin with. Well, exactly. If you don't have a viable business model with open source, then don't use open source. You can't pivot halfway through and start making things proprietary because you're going to have a huge backlash. And I probably shouldn't be saying that don't use open source, but... I think the, the better way to say it is find a business model that works with open source. And to have not seen this coming was just short-sighted of them. And now they're trying to retroactively fix it with a license change so that way they can go to the VCs and say, well, look, now, now we've got a handle on our future property. Our value add, we've got a real handle on that now. It's licensed properly. People have to come to us. And, you know, their business is growing. They say they've got around 8,000 customers right now that use their hosted services. Uh, that's not Amazon scale even a little tiny bit, but it's something. It's generating them a nice little bit of cash, and they want to grow that. And so they're going to the VCs, and they're saying, well, now that we've relicensed, that's all tidied up. We've got that in, we've got that in the can now. And the, the proposition seems to be, in the future, we're going to invent some stuff for the enterprise side that's so great, they'll have to use our services. But I would very much doubt that. I, I would just simply think that if they created something that added value, Amazon could just replicate it, on their own, using their own development team at a much larger scale and integrate it into their product pipeline. They, they've now got the base, right? There's no putting the genie back in the, the bottle, if you will. It, it, the, the core source code's out there, and now they can build value on top of it forever. Apache fought this same issue in the 90s, and Apache decided to double down into open source and say, well, look, it gets our product out there as a standard. Now Apache's a platform. There's a LAMP stack now, and it furthers open source. So there's a, there is a net win for Apache in that direction, and there's a net win by Apache becoming the standard. And, you know, nobody, nobody's walking around with Apache money, so, you know, buying Teslas here and there, but it was the right way to handle this because of the license they used. And, 
And Redis is treating this as if open source has gone bankrupt and Amazon's running away with the source code, as if no one's ever done that before. Yeah, so really it boils down to they should have done the foundation route rather than making Redis Labs a commercial entity because there's not really that much money to be made that way. If you're a foundation that doesn't have to chase growth and revenue, you can just concentrate on making a good open source product and the finances will just sort of work themselves out. And as you say, no one gets rich, but it is sustainable. Yeah, who's to say? Maybe they can pull off a competitive commercial offering. I mean, they are the creators of the software. If anybody could compete, it should be them. So perhaps Redis Labs will pull something out here, and uh, they'll, in a couple of years, they'll have tens of thousands of customers using their hosted solution, and they'll still be a good core open-source application for us all to use. Uh, that could very well happen. Uh, we'll see. But I do think it's, um, it feels a little disingenuous to, to say that open-source is fundamentally flawed and that the cloud is ruining open-source. <laughs> the cloud's powered by open-source. Yeah, well, we wouldn't have had the cloud without open-source probably, and for it to kill it just seems a bit over-rigging the pudding to me. I think that it might kill certain business models like Redis Labs, but I think ultimately open source will be fine. New technology waves often do that. They disrupt one business model and new ones emerge. Just, just ask the news industry. But that doesn't mean the cloud won't always be powered by open source and Linux in some form or another. It's the business models around it will continue to change as the industry changes, but that GPL cancer, that's not going anywhere. <laughs> Maybe the cloud will be powered by ARM processors soon, Joe. Yeah, that's the question. Is this finally going to happen? We, how long have we been talking about ARM in the data center? And it just doesn't ever seem to fully take off. But now ARM have announced Neoverse processors that they're at least claiming are going to disrupt the x86 side of things. And we are finally going to get these ARM data centers that we've been long promised. Here they come. Yeah, ARM claims the design provides as much as 2.5 times more processing power for certain server workloads than previous ARM architectures. And they say, moreover, it's 60% speedier <laughs> when assessed by how fast it processes integers, which are a basic unit of data. Um, they also hype the artificial intelligence support. I don't doubt that ARM CPUs are going, going to see a continued adoption in the data center especially on the edge devices, absolutely. Accelerators, purpose-built devices, clearly, clearly, I think ARM's going to probably see a ton of success there. Um, new telco equipment, absolutely ARM-based. I could clearly, clearly see that. That seems obvious to me. But I'm on board with Linus on this one. Uh, anything that's going to be in the application stack, anything that lives in Layer 7, that's going to be running on x86 processors for a very long time. Yeah, that's what everyone's talking about. This email thread where Linus has basically said, nah, this is not going to happen. They're not mature enough. It can't compete with x86. And the fundamental reason that he said is people are developing on x86 workstations and they want to deploy to x86 servers, which is a very valid point. People don't want to have to deploy to a different architecture because you're inevitably going to find various bugs that are on one architecture but not on the other. And look how slow enterprise is to adopt changes. Like these large-scale enterprise applications, uh, you know, there's still systems running on Windows 7 and Windows XP because it runs along just fine and that business class application needs that operating system. It's a slow-moving 
very slow-moving industry when it comes to software. And I think he nailed it when he said as long as people will have to cross-build you know, for uh, x86 and ARM at the same time, it's just not going to be that great. Like You have to get to a point where it's the only platform people are developing for for the software to get really great and to be really good server-grade at that higher level where you're creating user applications. But the thing is, we know that all developers use MacBooks, right? Where even if it's in secret. And it looks like Apple are going to switch to ARM very soon. They proved with the iPad Pro that they can have desktop class performance with an ARM device. And so there are strong rumors that in the next year or two, Apple will be shipping at least some machines that are completely ARM-based. You're referring to some reporting that was out of Axios this week that was citing, quote, developers and Intel officials that were familiar with the matter. Uh, And I guess on Intel's roadmap, they are planning for Apple to transition to ARM by like, yeah, 20, 2021, something like that. Um, That seems like it would be a pretty big mistake for that developer market that bought a lot of MacBooks so that way they could have a system that could run their proprietary applications or whatever they wanted, but then they could click a button and have the Bash terminal and have access to some of the standard Unix user land applications. That was a huge selling point for the MacBook. And I, I watched conferences, I just watched it take off like wildfire year after year. You know, you go to several you go to several a year and at every event there'd be more MacBooks. We'd talk about it on the shows. We'd be like, there's so many MacBooks now. And it was clear what they were doing. They were SSHing into Linux boxes. And <laughs> I think a big part of it was they could do some of that local development right there. They could install Ruby, they could install Perl or Python and do development right there in a terminal and then upload it to their cloud instance or whatever it might be. And um, it just seems like you lose a huge part of that value if it's not x86. I might be wrong, but it, it would seem like that to me. And I think I, I, I just, I completely agree with Linus's point. And I'll link it in the show notes so that way you guys can read it. it I think it's very, it's, it's just a compelling point. Like that's why x86 took over the server market to begin with. When I, when I got into IT, there were alpha processors and risk processors and x86 processors and power PC processors. And it basically all went away, except for x86. And it, in a huge part, was because of Windows. Because developers were writing on Windows, on their x86 PCs. And that's why. However, where Apple leads, the rest of the industry generally follows. And so we might end up seeing ThinkPads with ARM processors in them. It might just become the standard. I'm not saying that it's going to happen this year or maybe even in 2020, but within the next five years, ARM processors could catch up and we could get enough performance, not to mention the incredible battery life that we get as a result of that. And it might be that they take over. I do tend to agree. If you zoom out the timeline enough, you kind of do think it, it, it has a bigger possibility of working out. And Apple makes their own chips in-house, so they'd be a pretty key vendor to switch over their desktop or laptop line, maybe just be a few machines or one machine at first, and they could just throw a few of their A-series processors in there like they do in the iPads. Just ah, throw six of them in there. I, I mean, maybe, and, and maybe that takes off and, and the PC vendors do it, and all of a sudden you got a bunch of people that are writing software on ARM CPUs, and so the server market makes a transition. I've always thought ARM would be successful in the data center as we 
break things off into more purpose-built appliance hardware, which is a super common trend in the data center. You, there's so many appliances and accelerators for different things now. And you, why wouldn't you start with a pretty competitive CPU platform that has lower power usage and produces less heat? Like, it's just obvious. Um, and there's just going to be more and more of that. So you may, it, maybe there'll be parity in, in you know, a five to 10 year time period. It could be before that. I, mean, I saw Popey tweeting about wanting to test snaps on ARM this week. So it's something that obviously is on Canonical employees' radar, Linux on ARM. And, you know, we've had the Raspberry Pis and hacker boards and everything, but maybe the tide is starting to turn and we might end up in an ARM world on our workstations and servers before we thought we would. I'd be willing to give it a go. I have nothing necessarily against it. The Wine Project's investing time into it. Uh, Their Hangover 0.4 alpha release came out which is a project for running Wine applications, x86 and even 64-bit Wine applications on 64-bit ARM CPUs. That's, so they're doing not only the Windows API translation, but under the hood, they're taking QMU and they're virtualizing x86 components to, to run that Windows application on a Linux box with an ARM CPU. Well, just last week, we were talking about those cheap Windows laptops that are ARM-based, and the struggle to get Linux running on them and how, okay, it's not quite there yet, but it is happening. And it's great to see that the wine developers are keeping a pace with this. It's very early days and things aren't working very well, but it's not something that they're ignoring. And so it is great to see that you might end up being able to play Windows games on Linux on our machines. It's going to take a lot of ARM processors or they're going to have to get a lot faster because right now, as you would imagine, there is, as they put it, a quote-unquote cost due to emulating <laughs> the whole x86 or x86-64 architecture. And as their documentation states, quote, don't expect this to be fast. <laughs> <laughs> so it's got some work, but... I wonder if that old, you know, trucks versus cars analogy that got applied to tablets and PCs a lot, I wonder if that might be updated in the near future where the x86 systems are your trucks and your cars, just your daily drivers, are ARM-based systems. Yeah, or maybe a more apt analogy would be like a scooter or something, one of those electric scooters that you can uh, <laughs> get with the apps on your phone. <laughs> Well, if it develops, Joe, you know what? If we see if we see it develop into something, we'll cover right here on the show. Well, that and all of the other things that matter in Linux and the open source world, go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. Yeah, I'd love to hear from you if you think ARM is going to take over the data center. Go read the link for Linus's post and then go to their contact page and, and make your case. Also... If you are a full-stack Ruby on Rails developer, Linux Academy is hiring a full-time remote position. Go to linuxacademy.com slash careers, or we'll have a link at the bottom of the show notes in this episode if you'd like to apply. We're also doing another freebie study group after Linux Unplugged on March 5th. It's about Linux system fundamentals and some history. Go to meetup.com slash Broadcasting for more details on when and how to participate and all that kind of stuff. We will be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later.